0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're tuning in from around the world. I'm Bill Glasgow of the Volcker Alliance. I'm here with Susan Walker, my co-host, from the Penn Institute for Urban Research at University of Pennsylvania. And this is Special Briefing and we have a very special, special briefing for you today. We are approaching July 1st, which is the beginning of the fiscal year in most states, uh, in many municipalities in this country, but certainly for the states. Budgets are being finalized, if not passed already. States are brimming with money as a result of uh, tremendous economic stimulus that we'll hear about in a few minutes. And we have a terrific panel to discuss this today. Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics is joining us. Shelby Kearns, Executive Director of the National Association of State Budget Officers, wanna talk about the view from the states as the budgets get finalized. Huey Newsom. CFO of Wayne County, Michigan, which is otherwise known as uh, Detroit. He's going to talk about his budget that's in the works right now and what they're looking for. And last but not least, a return visitor like Mark, uh, Mayor Kim Norton from Rochester, Minnesota. So we're going to look from 10,000 feet or 20,000 feet right down to the city level and try and dope out what's going to happen for the rest of this year next year and out into 2024, when a lot of the federal funding is scheduled to trail off. A couple of housekeeping details for you in this special briefing. Number one, we've taken very good questions from attendees in advance, so we won't be taking live questions. You can follow up afterwards, and we'll put a slide up to, to show you exactly how to contact us, uh, all the panelists, and Susan and me. All of the attendees will be muted, and you camera. Members are off for this event, but we know you're out there, and we really appreciate your support over this past uh, year and a half of incredible public health and economic turmoil. Thank God we're on the on the mend right now. This event is on the record. We always have media in attendance. We welcome you, and so the panel should know that anything you say may be reported upon. And finally, you can view this show and all the previous events on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites where they will live in eternity in our archives. So with that, let me introduce my co-host, Susan Wachter. Susan, it's great to see you on this lovely day in the Northeast. Fortunately, we're not sweltering like our colleagues in the Southwest and West. Why don't we get it going with Mark who's on the, the Penn IUR advisory Thank you, Bill.
2: Team. It's a pleasure to be here and to join you and the Volcker Alliance in presenting the series. And it's a particular pleasure to introduce our first speaker today, our first panelist, Mark Zandy, who is well known to everyone and chief economist of Moody's, and particularly well positioned to provide an overview on the economy, the economic outlook as a whole, and, and also for state and local governments, important part of the overall economy, but perhaps a lagging part. Mark? Thank you, Susan. Thank
3: you, Bill. Thank you for the opportunity to participate today. I'll make a two broad points in my r- remarks. So first, on the economic outlook, I'm optimistic. I think uh, prospects are very good over the next uh, 12, 18 months. I do think that if everything sticks roughly to script, I think the s- script is on pretty solid ground. The economy should be back to full employment or something pretty close to that by late 2022 or early uh, 23. And when I say full employment, uh, that not only means an unemployment rate that is uh, sub four percent consistent with the kind of unemployment we had pre-pandemic, but it also means lab, uh, higher labor force participation back closer to pre-pandemic levels. And I, I think the best measure of uh, full employment is uh, the employment to population ratio for prime age workers, uh, folks between the ages of 25 and 54. That's a good rule of thumb if it's over 80 uh, percent. That's consistent with uh, an economy that is uh, doing well, wage growth is accelerating, uh, life is pretty good. Uh, there are three uh, key reasons for this optimism. First is reopening. The pandemic is winding down, and in California, New York reopened officially yesterday, so uh, I think we're off and running here, and so we have a lot of businesses that are turning back on the lights, and uh, we're getting going, and a lot of job openings, a record number of open job positions. Uh, that augurs very well uh, going forward. Second reason there's a, a lot of pent up demand and a lot of excess savings uh, that's accumulated over the past uh, 12, 18 months during the pandemic with folks sheltering in place and uh, haven't been able to travel and go to restaurants and ball games and get their hair cut and get their clothes cleaned, those kinds of things. All those things are going to happen all at once. And because people haven't been spending as much. There's a lot of cash out there in checking accounts. It's mostly among higher income households, but um, because of the government support, savings are high pretty much across the income distribution. And so we should see a lot of consumer spending uh, this year and through next, and that will drive a lot of growth. And then the third reason, and a very important one, is uh, very aggressive monetary and fiscal support. Of course, the Federal Reserve has had its foot flat on the Proverbial accelerator feels like it's starting to think about taking its foot off a little bit, but you know interest rates still are at zero, fixed mortgage rates one and a half percent, excuse me, three percent. That's about as low as they've ever been. That provides a lot of uh, juice to the economy, and of course, we've seen several packages of fiscal support over the past more than a year, beginning with the CARES Act back last March, most recently with the American Rescue Plan, which has passed this March kind of toted it all up, it's about $5 trillion in deficit-financed support to the economy. That's about 25% of GDP. That is a a lot of fiscal support to the economy. Just for context, the fiscal stimulus provided back in the financial crisis came to, in total, about 10% of GDP. And in the pandemic, the next closest country in terms of the fiscal support provided is Japan, and they've provided about 12% of GDP. So that's a lot of juice. And of course, come back to this in a second, a lot of that support is going to state and local government, about 500 billion in total, from the ARP is finding its way to state governments in in one form or another, and that's uh, obviously been very helpful. So I think the outlook here is very bright. There are risks, but I'll have to say, I've I've been a professional economist for 30 years or so. I've done a lot of forecasts, as you can imagine, I'm about as confident in the outlook as I've ever been. It feels very good to me. Inflation is picking up. Interest rates are rising. But you know, I think the most likely scenario is that uh, you know, the, the surge in inflation we've ex- we're experiencing right now is temporary, as the Fed would say, is transitory. It's typical coming out of recessions. It might be a little bit more than we've seen in past recessions just because of the disruptions created by the pandemic globally. But I do think inflation will settle back in later this year by this time next year and be closer to what the Fed's targeting, somewhere around 2% inflation. And I do think interest rates will rise, but they'll rise in a, of course, rates never move in a straight line, but they'll move in an orderly way up and I think uh, our prospects are good. So point number one, uh, I think we're in pretty good shape here economically. Point number two, and I know this is, I won't dwell on this and I'll hand the baton back over to you all in just a second. I'm optimistic about the state and local government fiscal situation as well. You know, prior to the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, uh, we were estimating that the budget shortfall for state and local governments would come in somewhere around 200, 250 billion over two fiscal years—this current fiscal year that's coming up and the one after that—and that was very conservative under very conservative assumptions. And of course, as I mentioned, the ARP is going to provide. Ah, uh, close to 500 billion, 200 billion directly to state, tribal governments, about 150 billion to local government in one form or another, and then another 150 billion to education, K through 12. So 500 billion that more than fills the budget hole that we were anticipating. So if state and local governments are prudent in the way they manage that support, I think they should be in, in very good shape over the next, uh, at least over the next couple, three fiscal years. I mean, there's some issues around, you know, what happens after that, but that's, I think, a a good problem to have. You know, there's much worse things in life than not having money right now, so there's a lot of money out there, and I think that's very, very positive for uh, the outlook for state and local governments. Bill, with that, I took my seven minutes. I will stop, and uh, I will pass the baton back to you.
2: Thank you, Mark. Very much for that optimistic and well thought through as usual overview of where we are. And it's now our pleasure to bring to the panel Shelby Kearns, who is the director of the National Association of State Budget Officers. And she will directly comment on the outlook at this critical juncture for state budgets.
4: Shelby? Thanks, Susan, and and thanks for having me today. Really pleased to hear that positive economic outlook described by Mark, and certainly has us all breathing a lot easier than we were last summer when we were looking at at, uh, the numbers he had there. Unfortunately, uh, NASBA's Spring Fiscal Survey, which contains data on governor's budget proposals, isn't quite ready for release yet, but I'm going to speak to the budget trends that we're seeing in states, and then how some of the aid that Mark mentioned is being spent. On the spending side just to recap a little bit last fall states reported that they enacted budgets for fiscal 2021 with a 1.1 percent reduction from fiscal 2020 levels and that was the first time that we saw states enact a net general fund spending decrease in more than a decade and of course it's most helpful to compare those spending levels to what states were expecting to spend prior to the pandemic and compared to governor's budget proposals which In most states were released just a few months earlier, states enacted budgets showed a 5.5% reduction in general fund spending. So that was a very quick hit to states. And in looking at governor's proposed budgets for fiscal 2022, we do expect that state general fund spending will grow in most states, but what I consider a significant number, maybe uh, maybe even a, a quarter, although I'll have to wait to see, may continue to have declining general fund spending unless their revenue outlook continues to improve, which is possible. We are seeing um, better economic conditions, particularly since many governors released their um, proposals before the, um, before the passage of the American Rescue Plan. But the difference between you know, these states where maybe we're going to see some spending growth and maybe we're still going to see some general fund reductions really speaks to that uneven impact of the pandemic. And it's been uneven across state economies, You know, energy producing states and those dependent upon tourism and with higher unemployment rates really saw a greater impact. And, and of course, we had you know if states where we're more reliant on services or depending on their tax structures and virus transmission levels, um, there were a lot of factors that went into these differing impacts on state revenue. It's also really important to remember that while we're all seeing great headlines about positive state revenue projections and collections, uh, it's important to remember that that doesn't mean that it's a return to pre pandemic revenue levels. Um, This is more of a, you know, or or I'm sorry, it is a return to pre pandemic and not a return to what states had projected pre pandemic. So beating those catastrophic revenue projections um, that we were all talking about a year ago, it just doesn't necessarily mean that states are back to where they thought they would be. And while they're fared better than anticipated, again, it's it's really been uneven. We saw some data from the Urban Institute recently um, that said that in aggregate from April, 2020 to March, 2021, state revenues had increased by about 1%. So that gives the impression that states have held pretty steady over the past year. But within that aggregate number, we saw that we had two states with revenue increased by over 8%, and on the other end, six states that saw declines of over 8% or more. So keep in mind that those aggregate numbers really do mask some serious revenue declines in some areas. And while we've all, I think, grown tired of the comparison, I also think it's helpful context to compare that You know, when you have declines of 8% or more in six states, compare that to the Great Recession, where states lost about 11% of their general fund revenue over two years. And that's still very significant revenue loss, even if it's not the You know, 30% that we were talking about may be seen last year. Since most governors proposed their budgets prior to the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act, um, the stimulus from the bill may lead to improved revenue projections in enacted budgets. Mm -hmm. Also, we're seeing a lot of interest in how states and localities will utilize the relief provided in the American Rescue Plan Act. Treasury released an interim rule that's still being digested by states, but we're starting to see plans take shape. And in some cases, state's legislative sessions ended before guidance was available and states will not appropriate the funding until next winter. But we do anticipate seeing plans from the majority of states this summer and fall. And the revenue loss funding is the most flexible portion of that aid. We anticipate states will utilize that bucket to the extent possible. They're still analyzing the the provisions in the bill and the methodology spelled out by Treasury for calculating that. But that's the bucket that we anticipate states will make um, the most most use of that they possibly can. We've also been monitoring executive and legislative announcements, actions, proposals and and so on to track how states are planning to spend those ARPA funds. And the plans generally fall within then kind of a list of categories: continued efforts to address COVID-19, economic relief and recovery, public health and other health initiatives, education and workforce training, promoting economic development and tourism, bonuses for first responders, housing assistance, adjusting disparities that have been made worse by the pandemic, infrastructure, including broadband, water, and sewer. And transfers to drained unemployment trust funds are also an allowable use. And we're seeing many states plan to take advantage of this. That will not only restore those funds to healthy balances and prevent the need for borrowing, it will also prevent an increase in UI tax rates for businesses during the economic recovery. So while we're all anxious to see plans, it's Really helpful to remember that the deadline for using those funds are far enough away, 2024, that states can take some time to strategically plan and in some cases invite citizen feedback. We've also seen that in many cases legislatures want to be more involved in the appropriation of these funds, which is of course a longer process and the legislative calendar doesn't necessarily line up with when guidance is becoming available. So we'll be into fiscal 2022 for most states before a final rule on usage is published, so states are also having to take that into account with their plans. Just real quickly, I'll mention that we we do have a blog post up at nasbo.org on what we've seen from states so far, and we continue to share information there and also budget clips on actions states are taking. So it's a good place to check out information on state budgets and how they're using these funds if you're interested. And I'll pass it back to you, Susan.
2: Well, thank you very much, Shelby. And particularly, we will come back to the question of the fiscal cliff but it is terrific to have your positive overview, which is consistent with Mark's and also the important note that the recovery is uneven. And with that, I will turn it back to Bill who will introduce uh, Mayor Kim Norton and CFO Huey Newsom, who will give us the view from the ground up.
1: It looks like from what we've heard so far, we're all gonna party like it's 2019 which we certainly see in uh, sales and travel right now, and also, The go-to place right now for me when I'm looking for what's going on in the states is the NASBO website and the National Conference of State Legislatures websites, both of which have been terrific about keeping us posted almost real time on what's going on in the states. And of course, what's going on in the states affects what's going on in the counties and cities. Before I get to the county level, let me remind you that you are tuned in to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and IUR. You can watch this and all of our past events on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR website archives. I encourage you to do that. If you can't find them, please get in touch with with either of us. We'll point you in the right direction. Let's now turn to the county level and the local level. Huey Newsom has got one of the most interesting CFO jobs of any county in uh, America, I think. Uh, Wayne County, where he's at, flirted with insolvency. When Detroit went under and into Chapter 9 bankruptcy, Wayne County has been through a huge reconstruction period, and then along comes COVID. So it's been an amazingly tough year. So, number one, Huey, tell us how you made it through the mess. How are you doing now? And what are you planning for in your new budget? Well,
5: first and foremost, you know, this time last year, I'd even say 15 months ago, when the county first went on furlough, we, you know, because we were, you know, three or four years out of on the verge of receivership or state takeover. Obviously, you know, (laughs) there were echoes of the past with leadership. All that predated my time as CFO. I was only like six weeks in the job when when COVID really hit. But, you know, there were echoes of the past and we started to prepare ourselves for a recession, you know, 2008-2009 recession-like financial crisis. And looked at temporary furloughs, we started to review contracts, went through the entire process, even though the CARES Act was being negotiated in Washington, DC. It appears that, you know, as now moving forward, it appears that the, you know, the general macroeconomic trend is that we're going to see, you know, recovery. We're seeing inflation now. We're seeing almost a complete recovery of demand. We're seeing that supply can't keep up with demand. So the economy seems to be recovering nicely. The problem is, is that Wayne County, I think a lot of municipalities are going to be in this boat where, you know, the COVID hit as we were still dealing with structural budgetary problems. We have constrained revenue, rely heavily on property tax revenue, even as the, the economy recovers. In our state, we have what's called the Headley Amendment, which basically, now I think every state has some version of this, which limits the impact of property taxing. Um, appreciation, the hit on property tax valuations, our version of that is headly, So that limits, that staggers our ability to um, share in, in the recovery of uh, property tax revenue as property tax values go up, as properties, property values go up. And so we're dealing with that reality. You know, the COVID monies that are coming to the county, you know, the, the city of Detroit just got south of a billion you know about 890 million if i remember correctly the county got 340 million and so these are nice one time influxes but the way we're thinking about them we're looking at that pot of dollars separately and i think from a vegetarian standpoint this is sound practice that's a recurring one time influx of cash it's a nice chunk of change for the county you know we have a 560 Million ish general fund. So 340 million is a nice pot of money compared to our size. But the issue is that's a one time influx of cash. We still have to make sure that we remain within our budgetary constraints on an ongoing basis. So, sound budget practice. We can't necessarily give raises on the fact that we have an influx of cash. One thing we're looking at as we go forward is what are some of the things that we are putting this money into? Does it provide, is it an investment that provides a recurring reduction in an operational expenditure or a recurring increase in general revenue? And we're trying to take a very strategic approach using that as a parameter because this is transformative money even though it's not recurring money. And because of that, and because of our budgetary constraints, Really do need to be thinking about things strategically, long term, and how do we squeeze, you know, make this money and invest this money so that it has returns on an ongoing basis.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, when you say uh, transformative money, can you be more specific?
5: So, you know, how do we turn? Is there a way for us to turn the county, make it more modern, make it more livable? Those economic development considerations, right, so that we can draw businesses and draw taxpayers and draw residents. Are the things that we could do that we would love to do? You know, I think of it you know, back in my management consulting days. I think of it in terms of what we call a blue sky approach. You know, forget about limitations, brainstorm and think. You know, think big. What can you do? And then let's bring it under the auspices of okay, we still have a you know limited supply of money, it's a large supply of money, but let's think big. Let's think about transforming the county for something that would have a decades-long, um, you know, two, three, four decades-long impact. Versus thinking about, okay, well, we need to, you know, and there's some things that we have to do, like there might be some things we need to do in terms of capital and improvements to our aging building infrastructure, right? So those things are things we think about. But, you know, really, how do we, do we want to make Wayne County a green jobs destination, right? As we move forward and we start becoming, as more and more private sector entities governments say that they're going to be carbon you know net zero is there something that we should be doing to make ourselves net zero or attract net zero businesses and foster that and foster that that interest so those are the things we're thinking about we're being very specific and very very deliberate in how we think about things and we're also mindful this is a lesson learned from the cares act we're also very mindful there's subsequent um, pots of money that should be coming from Washington D.C. and so, do we do things with this money now that could our our strategy could change if there's certain things that are coming directly from Washington D.C. or through the state, right? Which means that we still you know, we have to be collaborative. We have to watch what the city of Detroit is doing. We have to watch what the state of Michigan is doing. We're building those relationships and having those conversations as we speak.
1: Thanks so much, uh, Huey. We're going to turn to Mayor Norton and. One thing we've discussed in previous calls is that you're a mid-sized city, but you share a lot of attributes with, with New York and Las Vegas and Washington, D.C., that tourism is a big magnet for you. And it's not necessarily skiing or boating on the lake or ice fishing. It's medical tourism. So you're you're in kind of a, a unique elite group. So how have you fared? And given what Huey just said about how Wayne County would like to invest its federal dollars. What are you doing?
6: So thank you for that introduction. And I found Huey's conversation and all the speakers uh, fascinating and I think heartening as well. So the city of Rochester, I became mayor just before the pandemic hit our community. And I came into a conservative, fiscally conservative community. We have a AAA bond rating and we've got Certificate of Achievements for Excellence in Finance for 50 years running. So, uh, know that that's the environment that I walked into, which actually is a good environment to be in when a crisis hits because people respond conservatively and quickly. Our community is a medical tourism community. So, we get about th- over 3 million visitors a year in a town of 100 and roughly 120,000. We'll see what the new numbers are. But the pandemic did hit us financially. We did cut, of course, immediately midterm that first year, but we had to cut a- over 100 million in this. Current budget in order to providing the services that we needed to in a fiscally responsible way, and we did so. Our budget is about four hundred and seventy-two million dollars. If that gives you uh, an idea, our general fund is about a hundred million. We, unlike uh, listening to Huey, we do not rely on property taxes for the majority of our budget. As a medical tourism community which you can also fish and boat a little bit. I should throw that in there, Bill. Certainly in northern Minnesota. We do rely on people coming to our community, and that all stopped during the pandemic. So where we do rely on the city of Rochester on its budget is airport traffic. We have an international airport. That dropped to about 37% of the 2019 passenger load and business our cargo operations were about 85% so that was a little bit better but of course it's the bodies that come to town that stay in our hotels which is another large revenue source for us as hotel collection and on average it was down from its usual around 70% occupancy you know depending on days of the week and whatever to an average of about 41 and some of our hotels are larger ones during the pandemic it had 12% usage which of course impacts the revenue to the city hugely Also, our transit ridership was non-existent for a while. The city council responded to the pandemic by saying, we're going to have free busing. We're not going to charge for parking downtown. We're not going to require you to pay for liquor licenses for bars and restaurants that were struggling because they were shut down for several months. So all that meant an impact to our city. We did spend several million dollars of our contingency funds right away to try to help booster our our business community and people to get through the pandemic. And then the CARES Act dollars, so it was a total of just between 8 and $9 million at that time. And we spent it on support for people, public service impact programs. And then the final one was economic recovery programs. And I will say now that ARPA has released its funds, Rochester was, uh, of course, a city that got direct funding. However, when you think about our whole budget, ARPA funds were only $17 million because it was based on a CBDG formula that was not conducive to a very large request, and some smaller cities in Minnesota got five times what we did. So our $17 million is being spent to buffer the next five years. Having said that, because of what happened during the pandemic and what we learned with our CARES Act funding, we are continuing to shift our budgeting focuses to issues like support for people the reopening and resiliency and supporting innovation. And part of that has to do with uh, economic development. And we're working very hard to to assure that the people that were the hardest hit during the pandemic are supported in the recovery as best we can with some really innovative ideas. So um, that's just a quick overview of where we stand. And I'm happy to answer any questions as we get into the Q&A, or if you have mm-hmm. any now. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Mayor Norton. And if I'm in a mood for ice fishing, I know where to go. Not right now. Wait till January and February. Before I turn this uh, over to Susan and we begin uh, Q and A, just want to remind you: you are tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and PEN IUR on the Volcker Alliance and PEN IUR websites, where you can watch all of our. 20 some odd prior events, hope you will. Susan, we've been talking a lot about about fiscal cliffs, about investments in in communities. Why don't you kick this off with some of the big questions? We did get great questions from folks in the crowd.
2: So our first question that I will turn to is from Kent Haichu, who is the former head of the Federal Reserve's Municipal Liquidity Facility, and now with Ernst & Young. And he's asking specific questions on the uh, fiscal cliff So the first question, which I believe actually CFO Huey Newsom has already addressed, but perhaps we can return to it, is how much ARCA funding are your jurisdictions scheduled to receive from ARCA compared to the size of your respective fiscal year 2019 budgets? So that's a specific question, perhaps Huey, and then perhaps we turn to Mayor Norton and Perhaps uh, Director uh, Shelby Karens can also. And then another question, which is pretty specific, which goes to what budget actions will you be taking, it's a two-part question, over the next several years to close the deficits that occurred due to the pandemic, and also to make sure that spending, in the spending plans, you avoid the cutoff of future funding. So what specific budget actions will you be taking to avoid the fiscal cliff in future budgets after 24? Perhaps we can start with you, Huey Newsom.
5: I think we got $339 million. And so what does that mean? You know, the budget that we are working on that hopefully will be to our uh, county commission by the end in the next week and a half, two weeks, we'll have a general fund of about 560 million. So you know roughly you know about 60% of our entire general fund is what we got. And then the reality we have to realize, take advantage of, if you will, I can't remember the state of Michigan's allotment, but it's in the billions, as you can imagine, and we're the biggest county in the state of Michigan. So, you know, programs that will consider the general public will obviously impact Wayne County on top of the fact that Wayne County is one of the the poorest, if not the poorest, county in the state per capita, which, and so there's specific language in ARPA, which says that your ARPA money needs to target vulnerable populations. You need to report on the impact of vulnerable populations. So all I'm saying is, is that, you know, the state of Michigan's money is going to, has to come here. Our money obviously is going to stay here in the city of Detroit, which is inside of Wayne County, obviously. Those things, those things are reality. And so in terms of making sure that we remain fiscally solvent, I, I work with the executive office and you know the budget policy statement that we put out as we're in the middle of the budget, the development of the recommendation of the budget. And one thing that we specifically said was operational ARPA. We separated the two purposely this time around. Of course, when CARES came out, it was well into our, at a certain point in our fiscal year that we had to think about CARES separately anyway. But now that ARPA is here as we develop the budget we are explicitly keeping the two separate so the conversation about ARPA based prior you know, initiatives really are self-sustaining in the, in the kind of framework we're thinking about it is you know does it have a positive impact on the budget as and let's make sure that anything that we do does not cause us to it not just salaries right but also any type of infrastructure if I buy something, if I make a capital investment, what about the maintenance of that capital investment or continued investments? I need to make sure that I'm doing something in my operational budget so that I ha- ARPA spending has a long-term positive impact, not a negative impact on the county operational budget, right? So those are the frameworks and the, the disciplines we're thinking about as we put together our, our as we look at how, what we're going to do with the ARPA money, but at the same time, you know, put together our normal recurring
2: operational budget. Thank you very much, Huey. Let's turn to Mayor Norton and then Shelby Kearns. Hopefully you can weigh in on the general picture on this issue. Mayor? I spoke about this a
6: little bit in our estimation in the city of Rochester. We are going to see the greatest hit this coming year in the 2022 budget that we're working on right now and will be approved in the coming months, uh, starting in January. We're slightly different time frame here. And so we are front-loading ARPA funds to help fill that gap for the first two years and then tapering off in the coming years uh, going out of that, the recession. And uh, again, even with this, and, and of course I mentioned it's a relatively small amount that we have to deal with, we're trying to be have our budget stability, but we also know that uh, we want levy stability. So we are probably looking at a slight tax increase a levy increase, trying to keep it. We had zero last year. That was part of the commitment to the community, but we can't continue to do that. And so we're trying to prepare our community for a tiny increase. We're looking, I don't know, I would say three to 4% perhaps in order to handle that cliff that we keep talking about because the 17 million isn't enough uh, to manage it for us. The
2: second part of that was, could you repeat it, Susan? So the second part is well, first part is if you have the numbers what percentage of your budget is coming through yeah. our have the number well I mentioned earlier that our budget's like 472 million and we're
6: getting 17 from arpa so <laughs> so that's a much smaller so obviously it's a, it is not enough you don't want to complain because it's it's a help and we re- appreciate appreciated and it's going to allow us to support our community. On the other hand, it was not what most of the larger cities I talked to are getting. It's a pretty insignificant amount in the big picture, but we're going to do our best to manage it through a slight levy increase probably and offsetting our losses.
2: So that goes to the unevenness of the recovery. And I do want to turn to you, Shelby, on that. And then I do want to come back to the employment question. Let me just ask you again, when do you expect to be back to full employment? I assume that you had to lay folks off, unfortunately.
6: We laid no one off. So we had no layoffs. We had a hiring freeze. The only hire that we made outside of that rule was for a DEI director because we were not going to stop the trajectory we were on for many years. So that was our one outside hire. It's an administrative level position. So we did do that, but we've had a hiring freeze on since the beginning of the pandemic. And I would say additionally haven't hired even some of the critical positions that you normally would say you have a hiring freeze but you have to have x things to run your city even some of those we've held off on because we did not want to have to lay off any employees and we instead cut the 100 million from our budget in other ways cip you know we made other decisions putting off projects to do that
2: and very dependent on the recovery and both d- the health and the economic and your back to tourism back to and tourism bring bring a mark back on that as well as unemployment but first Shelby, Karen's big picture on how the we can see even with the two local leaders, we have the disparate conditions and disparate responses. Are there generalities that you can bring to us?
1: I wanted to add to, to what Susan just said. Looking at at some of the some of the state budgets that have been. Proposed and not not enacted yet or enacted. Some of the big states like California, New York, New Jersey, are either proposing or enacting some significant program expansions and also have, have enacted some significant tax increases. The question is whether After 2024, the revenue will be there. Perhaps that's a question for Mark on the the durability of the recovery. But what kind of, Shelby, you you mentioned there's kind of two classes here. I've spoken to one state budget director who says we want to take the federal, basically take the federal money we're getting now and put it in the ground, invest it in infrastructure. We We don't want to expand programs in california it seems like the governor was for a while was proposing a new program every day was keeping a file on it what kind of gaps are you seeing in in how the how the states are are handling this
4: we are seeing you know states are using the funds in creative ways that serve their citizens the best budget officers are always concerned about that fiscal cliff something we talk about a lot that you're going to set yourself up for a big hole if you do have ongoing expenses and your revenue doesn't grow to take on those expenses later. And that's one thing that, you know, listening to Mark and his positive outlook on the economy, a lot of states may be looking at it that way, that their revenues will grow to cover those. They might have projections that show that. There's also a possibility that a lot of these programs that are being implemented will have less of a need in the future. You know, we're seeing a lot of programs be, implemented that really are responding to the pain that citizens are feeling right now. Those are problems that um, states want to solve. But by and large, we are seeing states focus either on trying to minimize the cuts they would have to make if they have had significant revenue loss or one-time expenditures. You know, things like we talked about the the trust fund infrastructure projects, we believe will be the largest pot of money that's spent there, even with some of the revenue loss Um, States are able to use that for their their transportation projects that were where we saw, you know, gas tax revenues decline and things like that. So I think we will see a lot of infrastructure spending. Thank you, Shelby. Let me turn to Mark Zandy. So
2: Mark, local and state governments are down about a million. And prior to COVID, they were flat for some time. What are you projecting in terms of employment growth on state and local?
3: Well, of that million... About three-fourths is related to education, and I would expect the bulk of that to come back quickly, certainly as we move into the fall and schools reopen in earnest. That leaves another quarter million, 300,000 that I think will come back, but much more slowly. So over the course of the next couple, three years, as state and local governments kind of sort things out, figure out what their budgets look at like, what other revenue sources they have, how, how strong, durable the economic recovery really is. So I would expect a full recovery uh, by late 22, going into early 23. One other quick note, you know, if you look in a broader historical context, state and local government employment has not been growing appreciably. You know, some growth in local government, some declines in state, the net of that is basically flat and certainly declining as a share of total employment. So its share of the total of labor force has been declining. I don't see any reason why that will change. I think we will see you know the share of jobs that
1: are in government, state and local government to continue to slowly decline over time. State and local employment hasn't really changed very much since two thousand and five. I, I think it's it's been through been yeah. through two recessions and covid and is is kind of stuck in neutral. The biggest problem is is that the state and local workforce and educational workforce is aging. So will those existing workers, can they be reskilled to take the place of of people who are going to be retiring? The state and local and the federal workforce, for that matter, are considerably advanced in age relative to the non-farm private workforce.
2: So, Bill, if I may take that point and put a question around it, we are seeing shortages and difficulties in some labor uh, markets. Does that affect, Huey, your what you're seeing and Kim and Shelby more generally. And Mark, what is your thoughts on those temporary, are they temporary shortages of workers? So let's start with CFO Huey Newsom.
5: It does concern me a bit. Obviously, you know, we live in a place where we've always lagged. We've always kind of lagged um, the general national unemployment figures. And so part of what we're seeing, unfortunately, with this labor shortage, is you know at the lower end of the skills continuum um the people aren't willing to go back to work you see their you know decision because of stimulus or it's health issues concerns vaccinations that sort of thing and so from a short term uh, time span big concern is will those small businesses continue to struggle and go out of business not necessarily not from a demand perspective but all, now from a supply perspective we can't and we're not seeing that per se as I'm watching this, we're not necessarily seeing the fact that the continuity of business, small business is not going to be there. So the suspicion that that we think is going to happen is once the stimulus starts to run out and people, it becomes more economically advantageous for people to work, the COVID cases continue to come down, this will co- kind of correct itself. But we definitely don't see it having an immediate impact. Obviously, you, you will have, if this continues, this could have an impact on our largest revenues, which which again, going back to what I said before, property taxes, property tax revenue. We just don't see that being an impact in the short term. We think it will correct itself before great. Great. Um, it great. could have an impact.
2: Great. great information to have. Thank you, CFO Newsom. I'm going to have Mark weigh in on the general of this, but I'd love to hear from uh, Mayor Norton and also Shelby Cairns. But I also want to add two specific questions that are really for you, Mayor Norton, and for you, Shelby Cairns. And this really, I think it's right on it, which the puzzle of perhaps how relatively small uh, the ARPA program solution is for you, Mayor Norton. So Steve Nelson, Director of Planning Eastwick Solutions says, are there any population thresholds, the minimum population size for ARPA funding? And another question which goes to uh, addressing inequity as well as future investment is, are the funds usable for small businesses and for small business, even specifically for research? So, the question of where is the funding going to? And uh, may I start with you, Mayor Norton? And also hiring issues, both, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Right.
6: On the hiring front, I would say we in Minnesota, and I think across the country and maybe globe, I, I don't know where this sits, have been looking for years at the problems that we're gonna have over the next 10 or 20 years. We know that baby boomers are retiring. We know we're gonna have a shortage of employees. And so we are virtually back to where we were with our unemployment rates pre-pandemic. And then I, my fear is we're facing the same thing we knew we were gonna be facing, we're just facing it earlier, which is our seniors are causing openings throughout industries that have to be filled. Every, we need everybody, every available body to go to work. And so when I talked about our ARPA funds and how we're using it for economic development, we have applied for multiple grants, and we're just a second-round Bloomberg Global Cities recipient, and we are trying to address exactly this. How can we get every available body, not just to, to handle the impact of the pandemic, but to handle, it can be a, a response to poverty as well. If we get people employed in the right jobs. So we are spending, while we're using our money to flatten out and, and make sure that we're not having that fiscal cliff, what money we do have is being kind of refocused a little bit in that area uh, to prepare for it. And I know there was one other question. Yeah, but so it's not related. What
2: about research and development?
6: And the business? Yep. Yeah. And there was a question in there about uh, helping small businesses. What we're seeing is uh, we used our CARES Act funding for that, grants, loans, PPP, a lot of, you know, including Mayo Clinic, you know, use PPP. And I guess we're more working on, rather than giving businesses money, we have a group called Rochester Ready, and we are focusing on getting people out, being creative and innovative about how we get people out and into the businesses again, which is really difficult when people have, businesses have found that it's more convenient for their workers or for themselves to not have a physical presence and people aren't coming into downtown like they were. And so we're, we're doing what we can to counter that rather than at this point, our, I think our businesses are bouncing back well enough. We're not giving them direct funding any longer. We did that in the immediacy, but now we're looking at longer term solutions.
4: Shelby, any thoughts? Yeah, the small business support is it's an allowable use of the funds and, and I suspect we'll see states Um, continue to support impacted industries, whether that's research in some areas. I've not heard of that um, specifically, but um, we know a lot of support is going for the tourism industry and restaurant industry and those areas that have been hit really hard. So the other question I think was about hiring and you know, it's interesting because we've gone from, you know, it feels like almost overnight from worrying about laying off workers to worrying about whether we're gonna be able to hire them. And and our, our conversations, quite frankly, haven't quite caught up yet. I don't think we've, you know, uh, that, that state and local employment numbers we talked about is, is still holding steady where it's been, but we're not quite caught up to that yet, but I'm sure it will become an issue for state governments as well. So back then to Mark, this uneven recovery
2: and particularly how hard hit, when the local governments that are dependent on tourism, for example, Rochester, but also New York City, the worst hit in the country. And part of that is tourism isn't back, but part of it is perhaps shortages in labor. When does it fully come back? Are the shortages going to be a problem going forward in these areas of labor?
3: In terms of the labor question, I think there's a near-term issue and a longer-term issue, which we're all hitting on. On the near term, I think the labor supply issues will sort themselves out. I mean, the economy reopened very rapidly. Many businesses at the same time, put up a help wanted sign and physically companies, businesses can't hire that fast. They just can't. I know. I mean, Moody's just can't do it. We've got a HR function. You got to go through the function. It takes a few weeks, few months. And then there's other, you know, issues that, that are playing on the margin unemployment insurance and parents staying home with kids and taking care of their elderly parents and people's lives have, you know, changed over the last 12, 18 months. And, you know, it's not unreasonable. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to kind of sort it all out and get back in their chairs. So the near-term problems will sort themselves out. But I will say, and this goes to what the mayor said and everyone else, that we got a labor supply issue. I mean, think about what the economy felt like pre-pandemic. The biggest problem we all had was labor shortage, uh, open job positions, hard time finding people. And that, we're just going right back to that. The demographics are very compelling. And I'll I'll layer one other issue on top of that is immigration. You know, prior to the pandemic, we had much higher levels of immigration. Post-pandemic, because of policy, because of the pandemic, we have much lower levels of immigration. That's going to be an issue unless that rights itself. So we've got, that's going to be our number one problem, you know, for the foreseeable future. Once we get to the other side, you know, and we're fully recovered from the pandemic.
1: I'm going to ask Mark one more big question, which will probably take us up to the top of the hour. Gabe Peddock, California legislative analyst, good friend and guest on this program a couple times. Gabe and also Catherine Kravitz at BMO Asset Management are asking a couple of related questions. One is, I I know Mark, you you said you're very sanguine about the inflation outlook, but you know California buys. billion worth of goods and services and labor every year. So what happens with inflation is of no small concern when you're running a $200 billion general fund. How confident are you in in that forecast? And and also, how long is this recovery going to last, barring some return of of COVID or, you know, one, one of these, another black swan kind of event. Off in the distance. Is this just a couple of years, or uh, are we going, going to go back to what we saw in 2019, where we were at the end of the longest recovery since 1857?
3: Well, very sanguine outlook. I think that's how you characterize what I said. I'd exclude the word very, uh, you know, because, you know, there's a fair amount of risk all the time. You know, let me put it this way I do think the inflation is going to settle in where we want it to settle in you know, we might have a period where it gets a little uncomfortably high, but I think the Federal Reserve will solve that problem pretty quickly. So, you know, I feel one. But if I were a betting man, and if I had to bet, you forced me to bet, will inflation be higher or lower than I'm expecting, my saying one outlook? I'd say it's going to be higher. Uh, you know, I think the economy is going to be running hot here. I will say, though, that this is to some degree by design. I think people forget for the past 25 years, our big problem with regard to inflation was it was too low. It was a problem. It was disinflation, deflation, too low. So now, you know, we're using this period, the Fed's using this period to get inflation back to a place where they feel more comfortable, a little bit above two percent. So, you know, so far what we're observing, what we're seeing, I think the way things are playing out is more a feature than a bug. But again, a lot of risk around that. And you know, things could work in a way that this turns out to be a bit more of a bug than I'm anticipating in, in higher rates of inflation. But
1: You have the last word, and we're at the top of yeah. the hour. So I want to thank you. I mean, done you. right.
3: Oh, I, and I, next time you invite oh. me on, I'll tell you the date of the next recession, Bill. But you've got oh, the local Okay. Yeah,
1: okay. And partner. I want to see your money. I want to see your money up front first. So thank you to to, to Susan Wachter, Penn. Thank you very much to Shelby Kearns from NASBO, to Mark, of course, Huey Newsom from Wayne County, Mayor Kim Norton from the, the, the great city of Rochester, Minnesota. I'm Bill Glasgow. Thank you all for joining us for Special Briefing.
0: You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local governments' finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.